0: My name is Brian Scott Barnett, and I'm a staff psychiatrist at Cleveland Clinic and an assistant professor of medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University. I wrote this essay about a patient with serious mental illness who cycled between a state hospital, shelters, nursing homes, and psychiatric units with no permanent place to land. The patient's name in this essay has been changed to protect her privacy. Unable to regain admission to the state hospital she'd called home for more than a decade, Miss F. had been drifting in and out of short-term psychiatric facilities for years before arriving at our inpatient unit. She would spend more than half a year dwelling within the narrow confines of our unit as we struggled to secure safe placement for her. She said little during her time with us, although her silence conveyed nearly a half century's worth of suffering in a way that words couldn't. Often, there was not much for me to write in her chart about our one-sided conversations, although they were nevertheless unsettling. In many notes, I described her affect as flat, although occasionally, if I took the time to gaze long enough, the mask that schizophrenia had fixed on Miss F's face betrayed a subdued melancholy. This shook me, so I didn't do it often. Miss F ate only when food was placed in front of her. She brushed her few remaining stubs of teeth only after nurses begged her to do so and when they supervised her. When they encouraged her to bathe, she made her way into the shower, but rarely managed to turn on the water. Similar to so many others with schizophrenia, Miss F had badly neglected her physical health, and our nurses routinely struggled to convince her to take medications for conditions that, if left untreated, could greatly shorten her life. The only family Miss F seemed to maintain contact with was her sister, who'd once been her guardian. Their relationship couldn't withstand the continual disagreements about Miss F's psychiatric care. So after years of strife, her sister finally relinquished this role to a court-appointed guardian. Miss F's sister never gave up trying to influence her care, though. She wrote to me about her dislike for Miss F's new guardian, who had anticipated this contact, and expressly forbade me from sharing information with her. I occasionally saw Miss F speaking into the unit phone between long periods of silence and assumed she was speaking with her sister or guardian. However, that assumption was dispelled when our secretary, who dials the telephone numbers for patient calls, told me one day that Miss F usually didn't request that she dial any number at all. On rounds, I most often found Miss F mummified in her bed, her body wrapped tightly in a blanket from head to toe, encapsulated from the world. For weeks at a time, she stayed that way for much of the day, immersed in smothering silence. Then she'd leave her room and curse at us for no clear reason, before suddenly clamming up again. We didn't mind. These profanities gave some language to her pain, although it told nothing of its source. Although most of my patients are discharged after only a week, I felt I knew Miss F. the least of them all, despite her much longer stay. Her mind was a distant place to me, almost totally inaccessible to outside approach. Little by little, though, her deep anguish began to show itself. She confided that as a child, someone had inserted a syringe deep into her brain, stealing her identity. She said she had also been held captive in a cloning facility for much of her early years. Although these experiences appeared to exist only within her mind, she suffered in our shared reality as well. Once she revealed the haunting loss of her son to an overdose. At other times, she recalled fonder memories. One day, out of the blue and many months into her stay, Miss F told me she was upset about receiving bacon for breakfast. She said she was a vegetarian. She told me about her passion for vegetarian cooking and deep love of animals. She used to visit the zoo several times a week to watch and photograph its residents particularly the elephants. After this uncharacteristically productive conversation, I was convinced I'd finally broken through. But the following morning, I found that the silence had taken her once more. Miss F's schizophrenia had proved impervious to all known psychiatric treatments, leaving much of her life to unfold between the walls of state hospitals, homeless shelters, nursing homes, and short-term units like ours. Decades ago, a state hospital would have provided her a lifelong home. Now, her hospitalizations at these facilities had grown ever shorter in the years leading up to her admission at our unit. In fact, the bar for admission to a state hospital had risen so high in recent years that it had been impossible for her to return there at all. In the few years since her last state hospital discharge, Miss F had been psychiatrically hospitalized at our facility eight times, and countless times at others. Many treatment teams had tried to secure her readmission to a state hospital during those stays, but all had failed. Her case is a prime example of just how dysfunctional our mental health care system is. Had she been jailed for committing a crime, she would have easily been found incompetent to stand trial and given the first available state hospital bed. But she hadn't been, so she languished in our facility, unaware of when she'd leave or where she'd go when she did. Miss F had ended up hospitalized at our unit after violently lashing out at a staff member at her nursing home, although that person didn't press charges given Miss F's severe mental illness. The facility's management felt overwhelmed and she wasn't allowed to return. When we attempted to discharge her to another nursing home a few months into her stay with us, she failed the pre-admission screening and resident review. During this review, Medicaid certified nursing facilities evaluate potential admissions for serious mental illness. If this illness is found to be the primary reason preventing the community placement of the patient, Medicaid won't pay for nursing home admission as it deems nursing homes an inappropriate setting for these patients. In the past, enforcement of this requirement was lax, but it has significantly tightened in recent years. Because Ms. F didn't pass the evaluation, finding a safe alternative placement for her fell to our team. In general, Medicaid's position that nursing homes aren't the best option for patients such as Ms. F makes sense, because these facilities often have few psychotherapy options, their clinicians frequently have limited experience treating serious mental illness, and their patient care environments aren't designed to minimize the risk for self-harm in patients who are suicidal. However, a nursing home was far better for Miss F than the alternative we desperately hoped to avoid, discharging her to a homeless shelter amid a frigid Cleveland, Ohio winter. We explored every assisted living facility and group home we could find, but all refused Miss F. So we turned to our Hail Mary plan, getting her back into the local state hospital. To do so, we faxed hundreds of pages of records and fielded question after question from the hospital admissions committee. Once again, we failed. Incredibly, the committee felt she was too high functioning. Prospects for safe discharge suddenly dimmed. Fortunately, an experienced social worker on our team remained convinced we could place Miss F somewhere if we kept tracking down records from past hospitalizations. He turned out to be right. In late 2019, when Miss F had been on our unit for seven months, the stack of papers we've been holding out hope for arrived. In it were notes detailing a diagnosis of dementia from a couple years before. Schizophrenia is associated with an increased risk for dementia, but given Ms. F's inability to participate in even a basic neurocognitive test, I'd been unable to sufficiently explore this possibility. With this new information, things began moving rapidly. Our healthcare system is an odd one that views dementia as something quite different from other mental illnesses. So different, in fact, that a dementia diagnosis opens many doors to care that are closed to patients with schizophrenia, including one leading to Medicaid coverage for nursing home placement. Had we not discovered those records, Miss F. might have died in the cold on the streets. But instead, within days, she was discharged to a nursing home. I can't help but wonder whether she'll be back. Miss F., similar to many others, is a victim of the deinstitutionalization that began in the 1950s. At that time, psychotropic medications were coming into widespread use, and the horrors of asylums were just coming to light. With the resulting public outrage and governmental budgetary constraints, states began to shutter many of their psychiatric hospitals and transition the patients back into the community. State governments hoped that by building short-term psychiatric units in general hospitals, they could draw federal dollars via Medicaid to help care for residents with serious mental illness helping defray the costs they would have otherwise borne alone if all of those patients had remained in state hospitals. Deinstitutionalization ushered in vast improvements for the lives of many with serious mental illness, and with the passage of the Community Mental Health Act of 1963, there was hope that community mental health facilities would assume many of the state hospitals' past roles. However, the promised funding for community mental health resources has never fully materialized, leaving many without the services they need. When those services are funded, they can serve as potent tools for keeping people with serious mental illness in the community. Assertive Community Treatment, or ACT, has been particularly successful, with a 2017 study by Jorgen, Agard, and colleagues concluding that it undoubtedly reduces hospitalization. ACT teams consist of people with expertise in psychiatry, psychotherapy, nursing, social work, and job training, which allows these teams to provide individualized services to patients with serious mental illness in their own homes. Permanent supportive housing is also proved effective for these patients. This intervention combines affordable housing with services tailored to patients' needs such as mental health and addiction counseling, case management, and vocational support. Some states also contract with private psychiatric hospitals to secure dedicated beds for uninsured and other patients who were previously treated in state hospitals for short periods, a more financially sustainable arrangement than operating numerous state hospitals. However, some patients cannot safely remain in the community, no matter how many resources are available. Despite this, states haven't stopped closing state hospitals. According to a 2016 report by the Treatment Advocacy Center, the number of state hospital beds has now decreased to fewer than 12 per 100,000 people, which is well below the 40 to 60 per 100,000 people necessary to meet current demand. That's the lowest level since record keeping began. According to the Treatment Advocacy Center report, in 2016, just 37,679 beds remained nationwide, a 17% reduction since 2010, and a staggering 96.5% drop from peak levels in the 1950s. The 2014 report, also authored by the Treatment Advocacy Center, contained the stunning revelation that correctional facilities now house 10 times as many patients with serious mental illness as state hospitals. Of the few remaining state hospital beds, nearly half are filled by forensic patients, according to the Treatment Advocacy Center. Forensic patients are patients with serious mental illness transferred from correctional facilities, most often because they are either incompetent to stand trial or have been found not guilty by reason of insanity. Forensic demand for state hospital beds shows no signs of slowing either. A 2017 study by the National Association of State Mental Health Program Directors revealed that the number of such patients in state hospitals increased by 76 percent from 1999 to 2014. Although not technically considered forensic patients, sex offenders at high risk for recidivism who have been civilly committed for treatment after completing their prison sentences are also frequently housed in state hospitals, further straining the scarce inventory of beds. Because state hospital bed counts aren't increasing despite the uptick in forensic demand, fewer and fewer beds remain for patients like Ms. F who are not involved with the criminal justice system. For decades, mental health advocates have sought to divert prisoners of serious mental illness to state hospitals. This situation now poses a serious budgetary challenge for state mental health agency administrators. The courts control the admission of forensic patients to state hospitals, as well as their discharge. However, state mental health agencies are responsible for paying for these hospitalizations. Because of the rising number of forensic admissions to state hospitals and the fact these patients are hospitalized longer than other patients, State hospitals have less funding to admit patients from the community. State budgetary allocations to state hospitals have not been adequately adjusted to account for these changes. As a result, patients like Miss F are regularly being locked out and left to cycle through short-term psychiatric facilities, emergency departments, general hospitals, homeless shelters in the streets. Although marked by numerous governmental missteps, the COVID-19 pandemic has produced some incredible instances of leaders coming together to help people with serious mental illness, such as when cities rapidly acquired hotels to house those in homeless encampments at the start of the pandemic. One can only imagine how much our mental health care system could be improved if our leaders devoted as much energy and determination to improving it as they have to handling the pandemic. Unfortunately, given massive downturns in state tax revenues on the horizon, secondary to the pandemic, it's unlikely that there'll be any expansion of state hospital beds in coming years. Thus, states will need to spend their mental health dollars more wisely, focusing on effective interventions that keep as many patients safely in the community as possible, so that state hospital beds are reserved for those who are the most ill. Aside from directing more funding to ACT and similar programs, states can also ethically curtail admissions to state hospitals in other ways. A 2016 National Survey of State Mental Health Program Directors by William Smith and colleagues revealed that one strategy already demonstrating success is the expansion of outpatient competency restoration programs, which reduce the number of forensic patients requiring state hospitalization to make them competent to stand trial. States should also consider the expanded use of assisted outpatient treatment. This approach to civil commitment allows those committed to be treated in the community as outpatients initially. If they become unable to adhere to their court-ordered treatment requirements, they can be involuntarily admitted to an inpatient psychiatric facility, a potential intervention that effectively incentivizes adherence for many patients. If they become unable to adhere to their court-ordered treatment requirements, they can be involuntarily admitted to an inpatient psychiatric facility, a potential intervention that effectively incentivizes adherence for many patients. However, a 2018 review by Stephanie Cripps and Marvin Swartz concluded that assistant outpatient treatment's future in the U.S. remains uncertain, largely hinging on the sustainability and effectiveness of grant programs funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. As we strive to keep people with serious mental illness in the community, we must also accept that for some, such as Ms. F., this is not a realistic option. Although we may rarely hear the voices of people like her, their silence doesn't mean they aren't among us in a need of a safe, stable place to call home. Getting them into a state hospital shouldn't require that they pass through a jail first. We can do better.